is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, Michelle Stanley along with you on the Country Hour today talking about Santos and its $4.7 billion Barossa gas project. It's hit another snag. The offshore regulator has issued that project with a directions order. You'll find out exactly what that means for the company and that project before one o'clock today. Also this afternoon, there are thousands of mine sites across Australia, some of which are facing the end of their life in the not-too-distant future. So in the country out today, you're going to hear about a new trial being done in the north to help bring the country back to its former beauty. This is our smoking tunnel. Uh, the idea is that we want to replicate a bushfire to our seed. Uh, a lot of Australian natives need uh, smoke to deactivate their dormancy mechanism so it will make them wake up, so to speak, uh, and germinate better once we spread them out on site. Talking about mine site rehabilitation before one or before half past one today. And on that topic, kicking off today, because the NT government was forced to step in and pay a contractor more than $400,000 to urgently stabilise a Vietnamese-owned iron ore mine prior to the wet season, the Country Hour can reveal. The intervention at the mine site has been described as highly unusual by a mining rehabilitation expert. Dan Fitzgerald has this report. Late last year, inspectors from the Department of Industry identified what it described as high potential risks associated with erosion and sediment control at the Roper Valley Iron Ore Project, 260 kilometres southeast of Catherine. The risks needed to be mitigated prior to the commencement of the wet season, according to the department. But the mine operator, a Vietnamese company called the Hoa Fat Group, was not able to address the issues within the required time frame. The department then used its regulatory powers to engage a contractor to undertake urgent works at the mine. A spokesperson for the department said... The urgent erosion and sediment control earthworks were undertaken to reduce the high potential risk of sediment-laden runoff leaving the site and the potential impact-related issues. The preemptive works were effective in stabilising the site during the subsequent monsoonal period. The contractor also installed additional sediment retention ponds at the site and improved drainage. A tender for the work was valued at almost $430,000 and it was completed over a week just before Christmas. The department says it will pursue the mine operator for cost recovery. Gavin Mudd, an Associate Professor of Environmental Engineering at RMIT University, says he's never heard of the NT government stepping in like this at a mine site. It's actually very unusual. It's certainly something that uh, there's not many examples I can think of for uh, a government stepping in and doing what a, a company should be taking care of. So it's, uh, yeah, certainly very unusual. And that should be the responsibility of the mine's owner? That's the way we regulate mining, yes. It's the, the, the leaseholder is, uh, is responsible for making sure they meet all commitments. So it's, uh, to me, it suggests there's obviously a very serious problem or very serious risk that the NT government was concerned at. Um, and they've stepped in to sort of fix it so that it, it didn't happen. And, um, and so it raises all sorts of questions. Well, what sort of questions does it raise for you? Well, what exactly was the problem? If, uh, you know, that's a, 
Um, were they worried about a, a potential failure of a particular, you know, um, you know feature at the site or uh, something? I don't know. Like, it, it raises, you know, like we, I suppose that's what we want to know. And then also, has it been fixed properly? And, you know, I suppose that's the next question. And then making sure that uh, that, that actually is recovered by the NT government from the company. So I think there's also all the sort of questions I'd be sort of thinking of. The NT government holds an environmental security bond of just over $1 million for the mine, which is currently in care and maintenance. Gavin Mudd says that money can only be used at the mine's end of life. Well, this is, I suppose this would be considered uh, operational requirements. And so um, the bond is purely for uh, rehabilitation works if the company is declared bankrupt and the government has to step in and complete rehabilitation. So the bond is not um, you know, legally allowed to be used for operational purposes. It's there for uh, after mining has finished and the, the mine um, has either been declared bankrupt and the government has to use that money to complete the rehabilitation work. So I think that, that's the sort of the problem here is they wouldn't be able to use that money. Uh, the, I think a, a comparison of the four hundred thousand dollars to the sort of the you know the one million dollars odd held in bond suggests that the bond is probably uh, a bit light too. So there's probably a lot more works there that need to be required if there was a need for rehabilitation. So, so I think I'd be concerned that the bond uh, is insufficient to be able to complete rehabilitation work. So you know, should that be needed in the near future? Uh, the Roper Valley mine is in what's called care and maintenance, uh, what sort of responsibility does the owner of that mine have uh, when it is in that period? Well, the care and maintenance basically still requires them to make sure the site is safe. It's uh, you know, safe uh, physically, um, occupationally and uh, environmentally and culturally as well, obviously. So um, so they're still required to meet all of those uh, um, in a criteria that are set in their authorisation. So I think to me, if you've got a mine that's sort of sitting in, in care and maintenance and the governments have to step in and do this, it, it really raises questions about what, what's actually happening out at site. Because if a problem like this has been allowed to emerge, it, it suggests that there's, uh, there's certainly been failures there or there's been you know, issues that have been uh, you know, poorly managed. Professor Gavin Mudd from RMIT University. A department spokesperson said the HOAFAC group is responsible for keeping the mine safe. Ongoing monitoring and maintenance of the works and site by the operator during the wet season will ensure the risk is appropriately managed and the environmental outcomes are achieved. The Hoa Fat Group did not respond to questions from the Country Hour. Dan Fitzgerald with that report. And if you'd like to read more on that story, just head online and search for ABC Rural. 17 to 1 on the Country Hour. Here's Neil Murray and Stephen Pigram. It's Good Light in Broome. Neil Murray and Stephen Pigram enjoying themselves there with Good Light in Broome. It's 19 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Santos's $4.7 billion Barossa gas project has hit another hurdle with the offshore regulator Nopsema issuing it with a directions order. Samantha Dick from ABC News has been following this story. What has Nopsema told Santos? Hello, Michelle. So Nopsema is basically the federal offshore gas watchdog. And in December, it sent inspectors to uh, Santos's uh, sites and it found that Santos needed to obtain further information about the potential impact of its gas pipeline on the Tiwi Island sea country north of Darwin. So what has Santos had to say about this direction? 
Well, Santos, they say that the company's environment plan for its gas export pipeline was accepted by Nopsema already uh, nearly three years ago in March 2020. They say that all matters uh, identified by stakeholders during the process were addressed and they say that they're following procedures in the approved environment plan and they will follow Nopsema's direction. They also added that the gas pipeline is going to be a pretty low-impact activity. There's not going to be any dredging or trenching activities involved. But at the moment they've had to stop building that pipeline. Yeah, that's right. So they were planning to start constructing the pipeline at the end of January. But now, as a result of this direction, they actually need to go away and engage independent experts to assess the pipeline's impact on any underwater cultural heritage places along the pipeline route uh, that may have spiritual and cultural connections. So this is going to be another delay to the Barossa project. It's already facing delays after the company lost a landmark legal battle against a clan of Tiwi Island's traditional owners late last year. Um, and they argue that they weren't properly consulted about the plans to drill in that area. So now it's about the gas pipeline. That's another thing that's become a bit of a hurdle for Santos. Yeah, and representatives from Santos are heading to the Tiwi Islands to do with that consultation from the the previous issue as well. So there's quite a lot going on there. But what have Tiwi traditional owners, um, well, they've put out a statement. What have they had to say? Well, they say that they feel relieved and grateful that the watchdog have listened to their concerns. Um, a lot of them are fighting the project and they say that, that, the, that the activities in the area of the west coast of the Tiwi Islands where the Barossa project is going to be, uh, is, uh, have, you know, that they have, um, that's underwater spiritual heritage that's really important to them that they don't want to be disrupted. Um, environmental lawyers have also come out and they've said that they're really happy with that direction as well and that they're going to work closely with their clients to ensure that, they, uh, that their rights are upheld. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what comes from this, but also what comes from the previous challenge. Um, there's quite a lot happening on the Tiwi Islands at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely one to watch. And this project, Santos's $4.7 billion Barossa gas project, is massive. It's previously described this project as the biggest oil and gas investment in Australia in a decade. So the stakes are high. Thank you, Samantha, for that um, yeah, wrap of really, really interesting story. And of course, you can read more about this on the ABC News website as well. It's quarter to one. I stand with the people who put others first, who care for the young and the aged, give of themselves for the benefit of all, make a difference in small ways and bring big changes. I'm in good company. I'm in good company. Who will be Australian of the Year? Join Susie Youssef and me, Hamish McDonald, to find out who will be Australian of the Year. 7.30 tonight on ABC Radio, ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. Hi, my name's Des Carey. I'm the manager of Kalala Station. You're listening to The Country Hour. I tune in when I can to the podcast. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Hope you're going well. The Queensland critical minerals industry will receive a bit of a boost today to the tune of $75 million. The Queensland government is set to announce this $75 million funding for a critical minerals processing facility, which it says will be the first of its kind in Australia. 
The facility was originally intended to process vanadium only. It's a critical mineral used in batteries, but it'll now be expanded to process other minerals as well, things like cobalt and rare earths. Queensland's Resources Minister Scott Stewart says the Townsville facility will help minerals companies make their products commercially viable. This is a really important step, particularly for uh, critical minerals in Queensland. Now, we know that critical minerals is the next big boom for us in Queensland when it comes to the mining sector. And uh, for us in Townsville here, we have got an abundance of minerals in that northwest minerals province. What we do find, though, is that a lot of the explorers were saying to us and, and a lot of those early investors were saying that it is so difficult to prove up their product to be able to take it to market to then attract investors. That was probably one of their biggest stumbling blocks. Now, as a government, we've realised that the best way we can do this is to develop what we call the Common User Infrastructure Processing Plan. What this allows uh, to happen is that they can actually prove up their product or, or process that raw material into a into a, uh, a product that they can then take to market and be able to show investors the quality of the product, um, the quantity of the product, and actually then attract those investors. So we are hearing that this is an absolute winner from the resource industry and small companies because this is the first of its kind in Australia. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that when we were over in uh, London towards the end of last year and talking to potential investors over there, they saw that this is actually a state government investing back into the resource sector to this particular level that actually allows this product to be proven up. Um, And I think that's a really good shot in the arm for us. Originally, the state government invested in just a vanadium processing facility, but this has now been expanded. Why has that been necessary? Yes, certainly we understand that vanadium will certainly be a big part of our battery strategy, but we uh, we took a long, hard look at this and, and realised that the rather than just limiting it to vanadium and, and encouraging that to be processed, we have got an abundance of a range of critical minerals in that northwest minerals province. So what it will allow us to do is to be able to prove up a number of these new sites, um, particularly when explorers go through and they, and they find uh, some, some possible deposits. It will allow those early explorers and those early investors to be able to uh, prove up that product, take it to market in much the same way. So this is actually expanding the capabilities and the capacity of that particular um, a processing plant to really service this north and northwest minerals province. Queensland Resources Minister Scott Stewart speaking with Jade Toomey. So $75 million in funding from the Queensland government to that state's critical minerals industry. 10 to 1. Blacksmiths, vet nurses and horse trainers are among the careers given the nod today by the federal government in its updated apprenticeships list. The recognition allows funds to flow for employer subsidies, and direct payments to apprentices and trainees of up to $5,000. National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson says she welcomes any investment in training. This is uh, very good news, Amelia, I think, to see these sorts of professions being recognised in a list like the Apprenticeships Priority List, albeit that this list covers occupations that are actually formally treated as apprenticeships and occupations that are also treated as a traineeship, which is a a subtle sort of difference. 
um, but an important one, I think, as we go forward towards our, our 2030 aims of having agriculture as an industry of choice and an industry where young people um, understand that they can be supported to have a strong career and understanding the skills too, I think, and recognising the skills that are um, involved in some of the professions within our industry. So very good news this morning. As you say, two quite specific ones around wool classing, which we know uh, there's a huge shortage of, and also uh, piggery stock people, but also some peripheral ones like vet nurses, for example, which are in huge demand, uh, gardeners, tree workers, blacksmiths. And, and horse people. So uh, very good news this morning, I think. We've spoken at end about the, the workforce crisis. Where are we at at the moment in fa- as far as the trends we've seen in more recent times? Has anything started to ease in any sectors or do we just need more of this, more um, investment into our younger people and people looking to retrain for the sector? Look, that's absolutely right. Uh, we need more of the same. We know solving this workforce crisis in agriculture is complex. Uh, We know that it involves bringing in more people from overseas who are are really wanting to work in our sector and some on a short-term basis and some wanting to settle in Australia. But we also know it's very much about uh, placing agriculture as an industry of choice for people who are school leavers or young people. And right now there is this enormous sort of opportunity, I guess, and and ambition and excitement around agriculture. And it's important that we can harness the excitement that's around uh, the sustainable agriculture industry of the future with the right skills and the right people and give those people pathways uh, in our industry and give people confidence that there are long-term strong employment options within many sectors of of agriculture. And so we're going to continue to to work with government and to lobby for not just more occupations to be added to this list, but more occupations in agriculture to be recognised as apprenticeships, which will provide then support not just for the people entering those, those apprenticeships, but also, of course, for the employers that are taking on those people who want to be trained in our sector. Like you say, Fiona, there's uh, a lot of comfort, I suppose, in having a lot of interest from young people looking to take part. I know you at the National Farmers Federation support the, the Gap Year program, things like that. How many people are you seeing come through that that I guess maybe then strike a wall, if I can put it that way, and they just struggle to find the next step like the apprenticeship, the traineeship? Are there any examples that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh, look, there's an extraordinary um, gap at the moment, I guess. Uh, Our Ag Career Start program, uh, which, again, we've worked with government to place young school leavers and and mid-term university um, people on farms, has certainly been extraordinarily popular. Um, You know, we're working towards placing 75 young people on farms this year, um, following on from an extraordinarily successful pilot year last year. And we know that every one of the people that we placed on farms last year is now pursuing a career in agriculture. But there is a gap in terms of being able to stay with an employer and undertake the relative, the relevant training that you need to actually really fulfil that job and, and have a full career in agriculture outside the university sector. Uh, we do need and want this on-the-ground training where um, both the students, the trainees and the employers can be supported for long-term 
um, um, official training, for want of a better word, where um, you know they are supported to to have the skills that are required in our sector and recognised, I guess, as a sector that is not just a, a low-skilled sector. In fact, it's not at all a low-skilled sector, but it's a sector of a, a huge variety of, of professions that do need do need official training um, and benefit from that component of being on the job, but also training as well. Fiona Simpson is, of course, the president of the National Farmers Federation. Joining us this afternoon back on Home Soil, Fiona, let's let's talk about that trip. You've just had uh, a very busy couple of days overseas. Uh, yeah, take us into that busy schedule and what you've achieved. Yeah, thanks so much, Amelia. It has been, was a whirlwind few days, I have to say, um, with Minister Murray-Watt and some uh, departmental officials as well, travelling to the UK, uh, a couple of days in the UK and uh, another couple of days in Europe, uh, in Berlin, particularly talking about the UK FTA and the EU FTA. And for me, this was very much picking up on conversations um, that I'd been having face-to-face with uh, farming organisation representatives, with bureaucrats, with decision makers, um, both in UK and the EU before uh, COVID hit. Uh, and of course, those conversations have had to move online over COVID. And it was good to be able to go back and, and meet those and see those people face to face again, to make sure that they understand uh, the sustainability of Australian agriculture, to make sure that they understand you know, what farmers are doing on their farms and the, um, I guess, the outcomes we're achieving when it comes to sustainability and, and how how we do things in Australia and how different uh, the Australian context is to the European context when it comes to managing our environment, to managing some of our invasive uh, weed and and feral pests, to to how we manage our animals in this environment where most of our animals are outdoor. Um, So, you know, we're very different from Europe where they're all shedded. So those conversations are critical. Um, The UK FDA, I think the finalised, the very last steps of that FTA should be hopefully concluded soon. Uh, The Prime Ministers um, have have agreed that it should occur in the first quarter of of this year and so hopefully um, that's still on track. Uh, and um, and then the EU FTA, the negotiations, I think, are on track next round in Australia in February uh, and still, I think, hopefully on track to conclude some stage this year. National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson speaking with Amelia Berners-Sconi after returning from Europe, a trade delegation in Europe. And earlier you heard Fiona talking about this extended list of careers which have been given the nod by the federal government for its apprenticeships list, that being announced today. So vet nurses, horse trainers are now on that list of well, the apprenticeships list, and that means that there are employer subsidies and also direct payments for apprentices and trainees in those careers. So potentially some good news for your business or potentially if you want to be an apprentice yourself, it's three minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. A vaccine for pigs against Japanese encephalitis virus is getting closer to being released commercially. The mosquito-borne disease has killed thousands of pigs in southeast Australia over the past 12 months. This vaccine has been developed by La Trobe University researchers and will then be manufactured at APM Animal Health's ACE laboratories in Bendigo. 
once it's approved by the regulator. APM's Dr Chris Richards says a vaccine will be crucial for the pig industry. Yeah, I mean, our, our focus is on uh, on the pig industry and our clients and to, and to make sure that they don't have to go through um, a similar circumstance to where they went through last year where they lost thousands of pigs because of uh, JE. And what will give your vaccine its edge? What's its point of difference as opposed to the ones from overseas? Well, the main thing at the moment isn't that there isn't one available from overseas that we can use in Australia. So we're just trying to bring something that our clients can use uh, now and the pig industry can use now and until uh, such time as, uh, as other better vaccines can come to market. And give us an idea of the timeline. Yeah, we'd hope it to be under six months. So, you know, we have the, the vaccine uh, all ready to be manufactured in, in Bendigo at our ACE laboratories there. And so it's really uh, just waiting on uh, the regulator to be able to give us the permit so that we can start supplying it to farmers. And when you do get the permit, what scale of, of rollout do you expect? We should be able to supply um, very quickly to most of those, the pig industry, who, uh, who are wanting to use the vaccine. So the vaccine will be, will be used across the sow herd. So um, it, it's, a, it's a smaller number of doses. Um, compared to if we had to vaccinate all the progeny pigs. So are you expecting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that you'll, you'll roll out? Oh, it'd be hundreds of thousands. So, you know, probably up to up to around 400,000 doses is, uh, is where we'd be uh, looking at. And do you have an idea, once approved, how many jobs this might create? Probably add only, only two or three jobs. We've already got a, a, a large workforce that are operating um, out of that facility. Dr Chris Richards from APM Animal Health speaking with Sarah Lawrence about that vaccine being developed for uh, the pig industry to tackle Japanese encephalitis virus. Heading off to the news now. After one, you will get the latest from the Bureau of Meteorology. For now, it is news time. It is one o'clock. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Spring Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> hello, hello. Michelle Stanley with you at five past one this afternoon. You've been hearing a bit about the resources sector today. And in this next half hour, you'll find out what happens when a mine packs up and the life is ended. Mine site rehabilitation. It's had some hits and misses over the years, but there's a new trial in the north, which is pretty hopeful to see some success. This is our smoking tunnel. Uh, the idea is that we want to replicate a bush fire to our seed. Uh, a lot of Australian natives need uh, smoke to deactivate their dormancy mechanism, so it will make them wake up, so to speak. Uh, and germinate better once we spread them out on site. You'll hear more about that before half past one. Do stick around on the Country Hour. First, though, let's get some weather. Sally Cutter is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. And, Sally, there were some big and varied rainfall totals across the NT yesterday and today. Uh, What have we seen? Uh, yes, to 9am this morning, Port Keats or Wet Air had 39, yeah, 100, 139 millimetres. Bradshaw had 117. The Flora River, Stony Creek at 92. Narwilly, 76. Screet Island, 70 millimetres. Daly River Police Station had 63. Mataranka, the Red River had 50 or 49.5 millimetres. And those to give you an idea of how heavy that rainfall was at what air, so between 
in about three hours between about quarter past four to quarter past six last night. So there's two hours to quarter past nearly seven o'clock in the three hours from four till seven. They had 125 millimetres. Wow. So it's a... So you only expect that to see that's about ten percent chance of exceedance, and we did have a severe thunderstorm warning out for heavy rainfall through that area yesterday evening. Yeah. So we certainly did see some really heavy falls through there. Yeah, it's a and lot in just a couple of hours. Oh yeah, yeah. We we're still seeing a bit of rain around. Manigree has had fifteen millimeters so far. Gove thirteen. Gunpoint twelve. So we've got a little bit along the north coast. We are expecting things to fire up a bit more over the top end, and we are just starting to see the storms starting to pop up. But most of them are still up in the north. There's a few sort of down towards Catherine Way at the moment. And down south, we've got a bit of a scrappy cloud band, but that will thicken up as we go into weekend. And over the weekend, we should see the showers and storms increasing across the south and then extending, or particularly in the south, west and then extending across right through the territory by Sunday. So what kinds of rainfall totals are you expecting across the territory over well, the next few days into the weekend? Right. The, we could see some falls today down in Victoria or the Gregory, so maybe up to 100 millimetres. The, if we go further south to in, in, and into the and further into the weekend, so the Saturday... We're expecting to falls probably more around maybe the 15, 20 millimetres out of storms up in the north. We're still going to just see your standard wet season totals, but down south is when we're going to see most of the rain. It's going to be Tanami, Leicester, and then once we get into Sunday, extending right across the, the southern parts of the NT, possibly sort of 20 millimetres through the southern part. So pretty good falls down that area and, and good follow-up rainfall for the rain that we have had. The, and hopefully it's not going to be too much to continue to or to re-disrupt those of the, the dirt networks, the dirt roads out there. How long is that rainfall likely to last in the, the southern parts? Uh, it'll hang around for a while. We've got a bit of a, tr- a trough coming up, moving up to the Territory. So once that moves in, it's early next week. That's going to start to helping those some of those showers and storms, probably more up in the Barclay. But we're going to just see a few of them hanging around. Could be sort of very isolated into sort of late next week. Okay. And I, I did see potential tropical low forming, um, but more likely from what I've seen heading over to WA, is that the case? Not not going to cause too much impact in the territory? Yeah, the one that we've been watching is out in the Timor Sea now and it's heading away from us. The, it's, as this trough moves north, so it's later next week, we might see a little bit of a low developing to overland and which may see the monsoon to redevelop over to, through the Arafura Sea, but it's initially going to be sort of a, the trough moving north. So it's not nece- won't necessarily be a, a pure monsoon that we see. But that, that initial one that we, we have been watching is moving away and it's, it's starting to have a little bit less impact on the territory. It, having said that, it is what is going to be helping the, the rain through the Gregory until today just because you've got the winds sort of still spiralling into it and they're just sort of meeting, converging in, in through there. So that might sort of help the few showers and storms later this afternoon. 
We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you for that, Sally. At Sally Cutter from the Bureau of Meteorology. It's 11 past one. She goes back, she clips it through mid-wicket. Thursday, ABC Sports Summer of Cricket continues. This is a T20 you won't want to miss. Catch all the action of the Women's T20 International between Australia and Pakistan. Every ball, every catch, every wicket and every big hit. Australia v Pakistan, live from Hobart. She jumps up in the air. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. It's a key time for weed management in the Catherine region with rangers and land managers busy tackling fresh growth before it starts to seed. Local landholder Stephen Rose has lived in the region for many years and says it's as bad as he's ever seen for weeds and he's particularly concerned about a number of new species popping up. Max Rowley joined him as he was out spraying at a property west of Catherine. Patches of it. Big patches of lemon basil. There it is there again. Rubber bush. How much of this is weeds here? I would say um, 60%, 70% is all weeds of all one sort of another. I don't even know what those ones are. They're, they're weeds. See how I've sprayed that? And see how they're all dying, those, those little shrubby-looking things. And these other red-looking ones, I don't know what they are, but they're not grass. Um, and they seem to be sort of taking over everywhere as well. It's just endless, the different weeds there are here. So how do you get on top of all this? Well, you've got to spray it. You've got to spray it. You know, hyptus is one thing. It's pretty easy to get rid of because it doesn't have residual seeds. Generally, you know, like two years of good spraying and you can, you can get on top of hyptus and sesame as well but sesame is uh, more resilient than hyptus it, it will actually choke out the hyptus really it's that it's it likes um poor country a lot well it grows in poor country a lot better than um, than hyptus does and i'm not sure about maybe um lemon basil's edible i don't know we haven't had any stock here at the moment um but it's unbelievable it just chokes out everything And you've been in the Catherine region for years and, and tackling weeds during that time. What's the situation like this year? Uh, the situation's pretty pretty bad here. It's as bad as I've ever seen. There's so many weeds, and there's new weeds that weren't here last year. There's a, um, a silver leaf uh, bushy weed that you'll see starting to get on, along the highways, and you need to keep a lookout for them because we never had any here last year and I've seen three this year already. So that's your concern, not just the, the existing weeds that you're seeing every year, but there's also some new ones? My concern is the existing weeds are here. That's, you have to deal with them. My real concern is all the new weeds that just keep turning up. That's the big problem. You know, It just becomes harder and harder every year because there are more weeds to add to the list. And um, I think we should be doing, and government should be doing more, about educating people about how a plant becomes a weed so that if somebody has a a garden plant or something like that or they've got something from somewhere else and all of a sudden it starts to escape and and move, you know, out into, away from where they actually planted it, that they need to get it under control because otherwise 
uh, that's the nature of weeds. They will eventually take over the entire area and choke out all the good grasses and things like that. How are you managing the weeds? What are you using? Uh, well, at the moment we're spraying with some emicide. It's, uh, it's a selective herbicide that gets rid of all the broadacre weeds and we're trying to you know, not kill the grass and you need the grass to hold the, hold the country together because the weed uh, infestation is extreme. Some people, you know, using herbicides, some people might think the treatment is worse than the disease in a sense. Um, what would you say to that? I'd say if you don't do anything, um, your entire property is going to get covered in weeds. And the biggest problem I find is that they keep coming from somewhere else. Obviously, we don't plant the weeds here ourselves. So they come from places like the neighbours, um, with the wallabies bringing in their fur, the birds eating the seeds and then defecating on your property. So I think it needs to be, um, there needs to be more education on rural blocks to not to belt people up about it but to actually educate them, go around and, um, and show people what happens if you don't do anything about your weeds. And in the end, um, like other states, there'll have to be legislation to force people to take ownership of their weeds, even though, even though everybody says, they're not my weeds, I didn't plant them, they came from somewhere else, but they're on your property, you need to take ownership and do something about them because that's how it just propagates from one to another, they don't care. Where you have been managing weeds, uh, what kind of results are you seeing? Well, you've got to be persistent. Once you start on it, you've got to um, spray them before they, they seed. And then um, some weeds are fairly easy to get under control, like hyptus. Its seed doesn't have a very um, long life, so you can actually deal with it. And within two or three years, you can completely eradicate hyptus from your property. Um, some other weeds have six or seven year life cycle. So you've got to uh, remember where they are and each year target those areas and um, slowly, slowly reduce them down to a manageable thing so that you're just doing some spot spraying. You will never, ever get rid of them completely, but you will get them down to a stage where you're just spot spraying. Which weeds do you see as the greatest problem? I don't. Uh, well, they're all a problem, but I think you need to target the ones you know you can deal with that are um, becoming a monoculture on your block and the ones that are just here and there a bit, they still need to be targeted because once you get rid of the monoculture stuff, the other ones that aren't quite so prevalent have an opportunity to take over themselves. So you have to deal with them all. Stephen Rose is a landholder near Catherine, speaking with Max Rowley. It's 18 past one. Here's Paul Kelly. It's passed over. Kelly passed over its 21 past one. As mine sites across the country face their end of life, work is being done to rehabilitate the area, bring the, the land back to its former state. Across the border in the Kimberley, a new smoking treatment is being trialled on native seeds used in that rehab at the Argyle Diamond Mine. Rio Tinto closed Argyle about two years ago. Since then, traditional owners have been collecting seed to revegetate the site and they're hoping the trial underway this wet season, which imitates bushfire, 
will help the plants prosper once they're re-sown. Galgenium Seed Operations Manager Riley Shaw and Gidgerman Andrew Daylight are part of the program. Riley Shaw says he's hopeful the smoking treatment will make a big difference. Today we are smoke treating all of the seed that we have to return back to the Argyle Mine site uh, for the restoration activities out there for this year's seeding operation. Right, and so what am I looking at here? I can see a, a tunnel that's uh, sort of covered with a tarp and uh, there's a lot of smoke around. Can you paint a bit of a picture? All right. Um, so, yes, this is our smoking tunnel. Uh, the idea is that we want to replicate a bushfire to our seed uh, to break its dormancy mechanisms uh, so it will germinate better on site. So here we have a, a tunnel that we've constructed earlier this week uh, with star pickets and uh, poly pipe, which is pretty basic, but it does the job. So yeah, we've got the basics of the tunnel. We lay our seed down on the inside. Uh, once it's all been mixed up, uh, we put the plastic over the top that you can see there uh, and make a fire. Wait till the fire's raging in a contained area. And then we put some uh, snappy gum leaves on there, some green leaves to create a billow of smoke. And we get a big fan and we pump that smoke into the tunnel. Right. And so the idea is that that smoke will help the seeds in there germinate? That's correct. Yep. So the smoke, a lot of Australian natives need uh, smoke to deactivate their dormancy mechanism so it will make them wake up so to speak uh, and germinate better once we spread them out on site and so the reason you do it this at this time of year is because the wet season's onset and the plants have a better chance of surviving pretty much yep so once the seeds are spread out on site uh, through various mechanisms they're not irrigated it all depends on our wet season climate um, to one germinate those seeds with wet season moisture and to keep them growing and get established so we need to seed when there's going to be imminent rains and continued wet season weather have you done this before is this the first time you've you've sort of put up a a tunnel like this no we haven't done it before it's our first season of doing our seed treatment mixing and seed smoking so it's pretty cool it's uh, pretty exciting for the team to be involved in Involved in the program is really um, good. Just um, going out the bush, um, ripping lots of heaps of trees, just the high ones, the short ones, and just taking all the branch off from the trees and just like putting in the trails and putting in the brown bags. Yeah. And is there a big crew that that works with you? I'm um, just only five of us. It's really um, yeah, it's really good. Some from Kanara, some from from Dundun, um uh, me, I'm just stays and warm. They just um, comes and pick me up every um, Monday. How is it? Is it pretty hard work? Uh, not really. When the f- first time when you get into the um, job is so hard. When you when you're in the middle of it, it's so easy. Yeah, you can just run around with the um, bars and just run around and just pick trees. Yeah. Have you ever been involved in anything like this before? No, this is my first time. I love it. Yeah, pretty good. What's the, what's the best bit about it? Um, it's the boys is um, like going out, look at the stars at night. In the morning, we get up about 8 o'clock. Yeah, just pick up any trees was like far away from the camps and you start to pluck them. 
pluck the trees out. Yeah. Have you ever seen anything like this before? We've just seen some smoking take place with all that seed inside a sort of a, a big long tunnel. Is that something you've seen before? And what what do you think? Um, it's my first time just seeing um thing like this. It's really um like really good. Um, just like next time we do this, we we don't need the boss. We can do it ourselves. The boys. And I suppose the the idea is that the uh, the smoke here will set off some germination like a, a bushfire would out in you know the natural Kimberley landscape. That's pretty cool. What do you think about that? Um, it's really good. Yeah, like when you got the fires ripping them, like burning the trees, and they, like when you got a bit of rains and things like that, um, bring the leaf back and the seeds. Yeah, grows it more better. So that's something you would have seen happen in the natural sort of warmer area. If there is a bushfire, you notice the, the big difference when a fire does pass through? Yes. Lots of um, seeds just um, popping out and there's some um, flowers. Yeah. And what does it mean to you to, to be involved in something like this that is restoring this beautiful country back to uh, sort of its natural state? Oh, it's lovely. Just having mess around and um, thing like in the mines and things like that. We need to um, put more trees, in, uh, like seeds and trees in there to um, cover the holes and things like that. By kind of mid-year next year, we'll get a good idea of what's germinated, what hasn't uh, throughout the wet season. Uh, and they do run trials out there on site to see uh, successes in the seeding operations. So hopefully by mid-next year, we'll get an idea of what's germinated, what's worked, what hasn't, and better things to improve for the next season. So it's quite a, a big project, I suppose, from start to finish. What does success look like? Successful restoration out there on site. Our seeds growing back on the country where they belong uh, and returning that country to something of what it looked like prior to the mining. That's Galganium Seeds Operations Manager Riley Shaw ending that report by Steph Sinclair. And you also heard from Gidgerman Andrew Daylight, who works for Top End Seeds. An apology from us here at the Country Hour. I forgot to play the Roma Markets yesterday, so here's Sam Hart with the details. Good afternoon. Numbers dipped to 3,300 at Roma today. Again, most cattle were from local areas with a handful from northwest Queensland and the Northern Territory. Despite a reduction in quality, restockers were still very active in the market. However, medium weight restocker pens eased on last week. Heavy feeder steers and heifers maintained prices on last week and ground steers to the process that maintained previous levels as well. Lightweight restocker steers sold to 596.2 to average around 531. Medium weight steers lost ground mainly due to quality, selling to 522.2 to average 438 for those to feed and 467 for steers returned to the paddock. Heavy feeder steers remained firm at a top of 450.2 with most around 408 and heavy ground steers remained firm at 353 cents. Lightweight restocker heifers lost ground, selling to 442.2 to average around 400 cents. However, heavy heifers to feed lifted 5 cents, selling to 413.2 to average 380 cents. This has been Sam Harp, the National Livestock Reporting Service. And there is no report from Dublin, South Australia today because there were too few cattle for a meaningful report. That is it from the Country Hour today. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Even though it is a public holiday, I'll be with you from the regular time of 12.30. I'll catch you then. It's half past one.